0: And let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we are going to be just starting off in a couple verses here. Because again, one more time, is not going to be an exposition of a specific passage. As this is Reformation Sunday, we usually do something special for that. Next week, we will be uh, beginning our study of the book of James. And I am... I am looking forward after several weeks now of more topical sermons uh, and getting back to our bread and butter of verse by verse expositions of whole books. Uh, and so looking forward to the study of James, such a, a wonderful and practical book for us And uh, and I trust it will be it will be a fruitful study for all of us. But as you are able, one more time now, let's stand in honor of the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 11, we are going to be looking right at the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 33, just to set our hearts on the things we'll be discussing this morning. Beginning in verse 33 of Romans chapter 11, hear now the word of the Lord. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living word, your supernatural, inerrant word that reveals to us our God, that causes us to to know you, to trust you, to be transformed into the likeness of our Savior by your spirits working through your word. And I pray, Lord, for us this morning that your spirit would speak to us from your word, that our faith would be built and encouraged, that we would be challenged and convicted and edified and strengthened. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, today is the day that Protestant Christians around the world celebrate Reformation Sunday. I I think we're all pretty familiar with that now in this Church. It's the Sunday closest to October 31st, October 31st being that day that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. It sparked the Protestant Reformation of which we are uh, inheritors. We are a result of that reformation. The central issue in the Reformation, as you know well, is summed up in these five Latin expressions, the five solas. These, these core commitments, uh, the, the, these things for which we would die and we would lay down our lives. We would stake our lives on these truths. Sola simply meaning alone or only. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone is the only infallible, inspired, authoritative word of God. As, as such, it is totally sufficient, providing all that we need for life and godliness and health in the church. Sola gratia, the salvation comes to us by grace alone, not by our works, not by our earning, not by our merits, not by our understanding everything perfectly. Sola fide, that we are, we are justified. We are, we are made right with God, given right standing with God by faith alone. And that this faith itself is a gift to us that God gives by his spirit. It is, is not a work that we, that we drum up. Solus Christus, that, that it's the merits of Christ alone that save. It is, not our, it is not our merit, it is not our earning, it is his work and his Earning. And it is only through Christ and his perfection that we approach God. It is through the one mediator, the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, soli deo gloria. The, the, the true gospel is that which gives glory to God alone. And again, we would stake our lives on these truths. Christians live or die by these truths. They, they are foundational to what we understand it to mean to be a Christian. And really they're, they're a summary of the gospel itself. These, these five simple statements, a summary of the gospel itself. And they culminate in this one final sola. That glory belongs to God alone. But that's, that's the aim of all that God does. It's the aim of our salvation is that God would be glorified. The, the goal in God, Christian, saving you was to glorify himself. And we benefit greatly by God's self-glorification, by God's, by God's acting in history in order to bring glory to his name. That, that, as we read that statement from Paul, making that perfectly clear to us. Romans 11 doesn't just exist in a vacuum Those verses that we read together this this morning. Paul had spent 11 chapters, and you remember well, because we spent months and months going through those first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. Paul is explaining the gospel in great detail, leaving no stone unturned. Examining every facet of the gospel. He's explained to us there in those chapters that no one is righteous before God, that we are, we are all guilty. We stand guilty before God because of our sin. We stand condemned before God because of our sin. He showed that God's plan of salvation has always been the same. There wasn't one original plan of salvation in the garden, but Adam messed that up. A second plan of salvation in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, but they messed that up. And now finally, a a third plan of salvation. No, that it has always been one plan, one way of salvation. It has always been the plan that God would act with grace towards man. And that faith would be the only way of receiving that, of receiving that salvation Paul argues in those chapters that just as sin and through sin, death and condemnation came through one man, the man Adam. So too the free gift of life and salvation has come by one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has, has rejoiced in those chapters that anyone who is found in Christ, as we studied last week, could never be separated from his love. That every person who God has predestined for eternal life will one day be glorified. They will, they will receive eternal life and will be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and, and as Paul reflects on all of those truths, that deep dive he's done into to mountaintop, ivory tower, glorious, deep theology, All that God has accomplished, all that God will accomplish because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, in these verses that we read, erupts in a hymn of praise. That's Paul's response to studying this. A hymn of praise. Reflecting on what it is that God has done. Listen to it again. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Our temptation when something in scripture or some truth makes us think really hard or it confuses us, we don't understand how it all works together is to get frustrated and to get mad and we maybe don't want to talk about it. We think we should ignore it or we want to fight about it. That's not what Paul did. Paul praises God that his ways are inscrutable. We could never fully understand them. How amazing is God? Paul, who is... A brilliant scholar, his mind is blown as he has studied these things. How inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So so even as as Paul has explained the ways of God and saving man for 11 chapters, he realizes no one could plumb the depths of this. He's gone deep. He has been thorough, the most thorough treatment of the gospel we see in scripture. And yet he says we could never get all the way there to fully understanding, to fully comprehending just what it is that God has done and is doing and will do that God's ways are higher than our ways, that his wisdom far surpasses our wisdom, that his knowledge is vastly beyond our understanding. And of course, we can understand some of what God's doing. What would be the point? What would be the point of coming together on a Sunday morning if we couldn't understand some of what God was doing? What would be the point of calling ourselves Christians and having a Bible if we couldn't understand some of what God is doing? But for all the purposes of God that we can see In God's saving of us, as one pastor said, there are about a million more things in every moment and every circumstance that God is doing that we just simply don't understand. That's how vast, that's how great, that's how immeasurable. So so what does Paul say is the the ultimate reality behind all of that? The, The banner over God's sovereign plans in all things, it's, it's this truth. And this is one of those truths that we can know. Here it is. We don't understand all that God's doing, but we understand what's driving it. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To God be glory forever. When it comes to salvation, we can understand this. Salvation is from God. Salvation is through God. Salvation is to God. And all of it is for His glory. That's really the best summary behind these five solas, the best summary of the heart that that drives and and, and produced this understanding of these Reformation doctrines. They, They culminate in, they are summed up by this final statement Soli Deo Gloria, to God be the glory. This is one of the greatest truths. This is one of the greatest proclamations and, and banners and, 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 and expressions that could be on the mouth of a Christian. In all circumstances, to God alone be the glory. I've sat with grieving Christians in the midst of traumatic situations and heard these words on their lips as they suffer through the, the fear and the anxiety and the worry of what may happen to them and their loved ones. To God alone be the glory. These are words of real comfort. These are words of real hope. These are words of real life. What Paul's saying here is that salvation is God-centered. The salvation of man is for the glory of God. And This is one way that God is completely different than us. It's one way we can't, we can't even fully comprehend that God himself is the most God-centered person in all the universe. And that just feels weird to us when we say God cherishes nothing more than himself. He cherishes himself more than he cherishes anything else. And that sounds a little off to us. Famously, many people have rejected the Christian faith because they say God's an egomaniac. Why would anyone demand that people worship him? How could we say there's anything good about someone being foremost in their own affections? And it would be true if we did that. If I were to stand before you this morning and just say, on this Sunday morning, I want you to know I love myself more than anything else in this whole universe. Oh, I worship myself. It would be fair to say. And you go, I, let's, how does the firing process work? What do we, who, need, who needs to talk? And you'd be right to do so. But see, God's not like us. God's not like us. What, what would it mean if God treasured anything more highly than he treasured himself? What, what, what would it mean if the, if the squishy, touchy, feely, everything's rainbows and periwinkle and unicorns, people who say, oh, God just cherishes you, are just the best thing in his whole universe. What would it mean if they were right? Oh, God loves you above all else. He puts you first. What would that mean? It would mean you're God. It would mean you're worthy of worship. It would mean God's an idolater. If he treasured anything more highly than himself. If he loved anything more than himself. He would be an idolater. And not worthy of our worship. And so uppermost in God's own affection. And uppermost in all that God does. And uppermost even in his saving of man. Is God's own glorification of himself. And we should say to that yes and amen. That's exactly right. So the final of these five souls to God to, to the, the the glory to God alone it's really the aim of all the other ones. It's really the aim of all the other statements. It's a summary of all of them. If if we rightly understand these truths, then glory to God alone must be our conclusion. That that must be our conclusion. And so we're going to just look at these, these five solas that we have studied many times, that we look at from different angles even each year on this Reformation Sunday. We're just going to do a broad sweep of all of them and see how God is glorifying himself in each one of these truths, each one of these great Reformation truths on which we stand. So we meditate this morning together on the glory of God. First, the glory of God in Scripture alone. How is it that God is is glorified in that Scripture alone is our inerrant and sufficient and final authority in life and in the church? Well, first it's in this way. The inerrancy of Scripture means that God can be trusted. We can trust Him. If this is true, as as we pray each week, thanking God for His inerrant word, As we stand together in honor of this word to to, to tangibly remind ourselves of its authority. If that's true, then God can be trusted. 2 Timothy chapter three, verse 16 says, all scripture is God breathed. Even in in the Old Testament, Numbers 23, verse 19, God cannot lie. And so if the Bible is God's word, then he is telling us, the truth. And here's what that means. You can believe everything he says. Look, you got nobody else in your life that you can say that about. You, you might trust them implicitly, but you can't bank on the fact that they're not deceiving themselves. They might never purposefully lie to you. But the truth is, we can never fully know our own hearts. There's only one you can say this of. He will never ever lie to me. He will never, ever lead me astray. Everything he says to me is true. When we pick up our copy of the word of God, assuming we don't have a terrible translation of the Bible that is twisted scripture, when we pick this up, we can read and say, it will never lie to me. This is pure and perfect truth from God. I can trust it with my whole life. With my whole existence, with my children's lives, I can trust it. It will never lead me astray. With all the other so-called gods out there that people worship, we don't have to worship if our God is the right one. We hear that argument, all that, oh, there's so many gods out there, and you Christians, how do you know that your God's the right God? Well, we don't have to wonder. Because he hasn't lied to us. If we trust in his written word, we don't have to wonder. He's told us, and everything he has said is true. It means we don't have to wonder what God is like. We have everything we need in order to know what God is like. He's revealed himself to us in his perfect word. We don't have to wonder what's going to happen to us after we die. What our eternal destiny would be. We can know for sure. Because God has told us in his word. Scripture reveals to us the path of life. Scripture reveals to us the path of death. And it does not lead us astray. The inerrancy of scripture magnifies the trustworthiness of God. Second. The sufficiency of scripture. The sufficiency of scripture means God has provided what you need. He's given you everything you need for life. And salvation, to live the life of faith. It, it provides for us the knowledge necessary for salvation. As, as Paul said, who can know the mind of the Lord? How, how inscrutable are his ways? We don't understand everything, but scripture has pro- spoken not just perfectly, but clearly exactly what we need to know. We need nothing else to know the way of salvation. It has given us everything we need. It has given us perfectly. It has given us everything we need to know about heaven. We don't need another word outside of Scripture to tell us about heaven. Scripture, God has revealed exactly what he wants to reveal. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. He hasn't hidden the way to heaven It's not a secret. It's written for us in the pages of Scripture. And when we read the Bible, God is revealing for us everything we need. He's revealing the way of salvation to us. We need no other word to show us how to get there. Scripture also provides the knowledge necessary for spiritual health. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. His word is The real food that your soul needs. This this bread he's given us is enough. It is enough for you. We don't need different bread. We don't need more word. This is enough. He has held nothing back from you, Christian, that you need. All other so-called words from God are not necessary for you. He has given you everything that you need. You lack nothing. He's provided all in his written word. The sufficiency of scripture magnifies the glory of God as the one who feeds our soul. We look to no other source. Third, the authority of scripture means that God is the source of all wisdom. So God is glorified in the inerrancy of scripture. God is glorified in the sufficiency of scripture and God is glorified in the authority of scripture. Everyone has an opinion about spiritual things. But only God's word is authoritative. One of my favorite things I used to do in the classroom since COVID, I haven't got to be in the classroom. I teach online classes and online classes are dumb. I would start my classes in the classroom by asking questions of the students to reveal to them that they all had very strong opinions about who God was, what God was like. And exactly how God operated and how this world worked, what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And then very quickly to show them their complete biblical ignorance and that they hadn't formed those opinions from scripture or any strong foundation. They had come from their gut. And it's a jarring thing when we realize that. But that's the truth. Everyone has strong opinions about God. Everyone has strong opinions about spiritual things. You're never going to meet someone who doesn't. Even the agnostic who says we can never know has a very strong opinion about that. God's word, though, is authoritative. We must depend on God's wisdom, not man's wisdom, both for salvation and for the life of faith. Paul compares the two, man's wisdom and God's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For, for, for those who think God's truths are foolish, the, the unconverted, the unbelieving. Paul mocks them with these words down in verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. You think God's foolish? You think God's weak? Well, his foolishness is better than the, the greatest wisdom men have to offer. His weakness is stronger than the strongest of men. The source of spiritual th- truth comes to us from God and from no one else. It doesn't come to us from popes. It doesn't come to us from councils. It doesn't come to us from priests. It doesn't come to us from philosophers. It doesn't come from anyone else who speaks on their own authority. God's word alone is our final authority. So God is glorified. He's glorifying himself in this great Truth of scripture alone. Secondly, the glory of God in faith alone. How is it that God is glorified in the truth that justification before God is through faith? Apart from any human works whatsoever. Well, we just spent six weeks talking about how he glorifies himself in that way. But first of all, sola fide magnifies his Righteousness, God requires that we have right standing before him or else we face condemnation. Matthew chapter 5 verse 48, Jesus says, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. What higher standard could be set for us than that? His righteousness demands that. His holiness insists on that, must have that. Nothing less than that will do. He will not allow the unrighteous to come before him. He will not minimize sin. He cannot just ignore man's rebellion. And all of mankind stands guilty of this. All of mankind is guilty of dishonoring him. All of mankind di- di- guilty of disobeying his law. And, and so his glory is upheld in that he justly punishes sin. Sin. That he requires righteousness. He must do that. And that is terrifying news. That is terrifying news to a sinful people. To hear that that is true. But this is why the gospel is such good news. The gospel says that for his people God did that. God dealt with our sin. By punishing Jesus. By pouring his his wrath out on him. and, And crediting Christ's perfect righteousness to our bankrupt account, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Secondly, sola fide magnifies him as the justifier. Again, this term justification is a legal term. Declaring the believer Righteous, not guilty, but, but not just not guilty, also credited with righteousness. The old expression is, "Just like I never sinned, and just like I always obeyed. That's what justification is. not only not only not guilty of the wrong that you have done and the rebellion against God, but credited with perfection and spot, a spotless record of obedience of Christ. We, we are justified. Before him. Justification is perfect, then, standing with God. It's Christ's own perfect standing with the Father. God alone is the only one who could do this. He's the only one that could give this. He's the only one with the authority. He's the only one with the mercy to credit Jesus' righteousness to our accounts. But Paul explains how God is glorified in granting justification in Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 23, where he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. (coughs) Excuse me. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 27, he says this Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works in the law. We can't boast about our justification because God is the one who is the justifier. And that that means we can't boast in our wisdom. Because human wisdom would never lead us to God. We can't boast in our works because we could never work our way to God. We can't boast in our status because we could never ascend to a high enough reputation that somehow the almighty creator God who made everything and sustains everything with just the word of his power would look at us and go, very impressive. I need that guy on my team. No, that would never happen. We can't boast in our heredity. We can't boast in our ethnicity. Because we don't come to God by bloodlines. All men are one in Adam. There's one race. It is Adam's race. And all men are fallen in that race and in need of saving and need need to be, to be brought from that race and, and and brought into a new race, Christ's race. That's it. That's the only way. We can never save ourselves. We can never even help with this process. It is completely beyond us. We are receivers of salvation, not earners of salvation. Third, then, sola fide magnifies God the Son because of his righteousness. It is his righteousness. It is Christ's perfect life. It is what we call the active obedience of Christ in living out a sinless life of obedience to the Father, that is the basis of our justification. <clears throat> In other words, faith is not the basis of our justification. It's not the basis of our right standing with God. Christ's righteousness is the basis of our right standing with God, and that credited to us. That's how we have right standing with God. And the way we receive that, the way that it's credited to us, is only through faith. A faith that God himself gives to us. Because he is righteous, we are counted righteous. Because we're united to him. This all comes because of Christ's own righteousness. And it comes because by faith we are hidden in him. Romans chapter 5 verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Since it is with his, Christ's righteousness, that we're declared right with God, then he alone gets the glory. We get no share of the glory because it's his righteousness and none of ours. Third then, the glory of God and grace alone. How is it that God is glorified in the truth that justification before god is by grace alone such that salvation is wholly of god even the faith that we have is a gift from god verse way god is glorified is this sola gratia magnifies god as generous abundantly infinitely generous his grace is a lavished grace his favor to us is beyond imagining. There's no holding back. There's no stinginess. It is is poured out in abundance. Romans chapter 5, verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, He relates to us not out of our merit, but out of his mercy. What is it that he provides for us in salvation, Christians? The answer is everything. All of it. Every last bit. He does not meet us halfway. He carries us all the way to himself. Second, sola gratia magnifies God's power. God's grace to us is a lavish grace, but God's grace to us is a powerful grace. The glory of his powerful grace is seen in its effectiveness. We're actually saved and transformed, made new. Only God has that kind of creative power. Only he can make new things. And he makes us new creations. It is a sure thing in salvation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold the new has come. Again, the Bible teaches that we were spiritually dead. He raised us from the dead. He gave to us new life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. He made us alive together with Christ, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God is glorified in that. His power is glorified. No one else can do that. No one else can raise the dead. Only God. Spending, spending the amount of time I do in ICUs and, and crisis situations, and I spent a lot of time there again this week, and I see the families. You sit in those situations, you go down into the Ronald McDonald house, and you know every single family you see in there is in a terrible crisis with the people they love the most, their children. And you can see them just walking with glazed eyes and tears coming out of their eyes in the middle of the day because they're so racked and overwhelmed. Why? Because they fear death. Because no one can raise the dead. And yet that's what God does for every single person whom he saves. We are dead and he makes us alive. He is glorified in his might. There is none like him. God is glorified in his power. The Bible teaches further that we were disobedient, that we were rebellious. And yet he turns us around. He turns us around and he he sets our hearts to follow after him in obedience. As the reformers would say, it is faith alone that justifies. But the faith that justifies is never alone. It always brings something. Saving faith always brings something with it. It produces a sure fruit. True saving faith always produces the fruit of a transformed life. True saving faith is a tree that always grows a particular kind of fruit. And it is a sure thing. God's change in us is so radical that it produces in us not just new behaviors, but new affections. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all the day. Oh, prior to this, the law is nothing but a burden. The law is nothing but a hateful thing. And yet it becomes our delight. What we previously hated becomes our love. It becomes our joy. And the glory of his powerful grace is also seen not just in his rescue of us and what he has done for us upon rescuing us and the transformation that he works in us. But it is in what he had to defeat in order to rescue us. He defeated that enemy that none of us could defeat. That enemy death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death remains for a season, but friends, Christians have a hope that nobody else has in death. For those who are in Christ, death is like a bee without a stinger. The sting of death is gone because we no longer fear condemnation. That doesn't mean we don't feel pain. It doesn't mean we don't suffer. It means we don't suffer like the rest of the world. We don't suffer without hope. Death is no longer the doorway to hell that it once was for us. For the believer, death is the gate to heaven. Because our sin is paid for in full. Because of what Christ has done. He also defeated the foe. Satan disarming him. As we sang in the words of that great reformation hymn this morning, A Mighty Fortress, our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe. Well, his craft and his power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. I, we've taught that hymn to the kids in the co-op on Friday mornings the last number of weeks. And we've walked through each of those lines of that song and what it is that, that Luther is teaching in that song, what those words mean, how, how this ancient foe Satan is smarter than us. And he is stronger than us. And if left to our own devices, none of us would do anything but lose every time. And yet, compared to Christ, he's nothing. There's no fight. There's no battle. I love as we, as we look in the book of Revelation, and there's always this buildup to this, this great and colossal battles through the book of Revelation. And then God just speaks, and it's all over. There's never a fight just God's authority being so far above all other earthly and supernatural authorities. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and subjected them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Rulers and authorities, that's supernatural beings. That's what we sang about this morning. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Satan's a disarmed foe. He has no power over God's people. We will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. So the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. We can endure his rage. His doom is sure. One little word will fell him. He can't accuse us before God anymore. His power is taken away. Luther once explained what that one little word is. There's been all this debate over the years. What's the one little word? that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. What's that one little word that that destroys the enemy? Luther told us, Luther said once, the word is liar. That's the word. The accuser of the brethren who would would accuse us before God, who would accuse us in our own conscience and, and try to tell us that we still stand condemned, that Christ's work was not enough for us. Luther says, you say the word liar to him. And it's over. He's got nothing. This enemy is a defeated enemy. His only weapon against us, he had one weapon. The only thing that could damn us forever is unforgiven sin. But Jesus has taken that weapon out of his hands, he disarmed him in the cross. In Christ, all our sins, past, present, future, are forgiven. Satan is left holding no weapon in his hand as he seeks to confront and accuse and for Christians. This enemy is one who does not any longer possess a mortal weapon. He's a foe, yes, but he's a defeated foe. He's a foe whose doom is sure. Third, Sola magnifies God's sovereign judgment. Because we don't have the power within ourselves to, to choose him. He chose us. The initiative to save was his alone. And he didn't choose us because we were more worthy than other people. But rather, as 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world, to shame, the strong. When you're tempted to boast, when you're tempted to look at the sinner and start to think how much better you are than them, read these words again. He chose what's weak in the world. He chose what's foolish in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. God did not save you because you are awesome. It's not because you're worthy. It's not because you're special. It's not because he just couldn't live without you. It's certainly not because you were better than anyone else. It's not because you were wise or powerful or of noble birth, as verse 26 says. No, what were you? Weak. Powerless. Helpless utterly without hope of saving yourself and so in saving you christian god gets all the glory what a merciful god what a good god fourth sola gratia magnifies him as irresistibly attractive when god takes the blind when he takes the dead when he takes the rebellious soul and because of his grace and nothing else Opens our eyes to see Christ as he truly is. We see him and his cross, which we once saw as utter foolishness and weakness. We now see them with clear eyes as totally compelling. We see him as powerful. We see him as wise. We see him as beautiful. We see him as wonderful. We see him as the best thing. In all the universe. And we are drawn to him. Because he truly is the most desirable treasure in all the world. When we see Jesus for who he is. He is irresistibly attractive to us. And we cannot do that. With our dead. Bound in sin. Rebellious eyes. He must give us eyes. By his spirit. To behold him as he is. And when we do. We see him for who he is, and we're in awe. Finally, then, the glory of God in Christ alone. How is it that God is glorified in the truth that, that our justification before God is in Christ alone, is our only sacrifice, our only mediator, our only savior? We could say much for the sake of time. We'll just summarize with, with this. Solus Christus, Christ alone, magnifies God because salvation is solely his work. Start to finish, it's his. He sent his son to come and save the unrighteous. The son of God then came willingly and gave himself up for us all. The God man died on the cross on our behalf as our sacrifice, paying our penalty, fully satisfying the wrath of God for our sin as our only savior. The son of God's perfect life, his life of complete and total active obedience to the father is the basis of our right standing with God. He accomplished it all. He gets all the glory. Just as Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, that we've read a couple times this morning from him through him to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. So there it is on this Reformation Sunday. These five solas that we have spoken of often over the years. Our justification before God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as as taught with the final authority of Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. These truths are the mountain peaks of our faith. And since it is God's aim in all that he does to glorify himself Then, brothers and sisters, our aim, because we've been saved by him, must be to glorify God in all that we do. Our aim as a church, because we have been built by Christ, because we are being held by Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the the senior pastor and chief shepherd of the church, because he is the, the bridegroom and we are the bride. Our aim must be to glorify Him in all that we do. Let this be the goal of our lives. Let this be the, the purpose of this church. May we be a people that can say with David in Psalm chapter 34, "I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me." Let's exalt his name together. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are glorious. You are to be praised. You are to be honored. You are to be revered and to be worshipped. We are to to stand in awe of your greatness. We come before you, Lord, with with humility. We come before you aware that, that Lord, at times we have taken you lightly. We We have failed to see you as you are. And Lord, we repent in all the ways that we do that, in all the ways that we are presumptuous and casual and, and lacking in reverence. Lord, it is our desire to worship you rightly as you, you deserve, as you are worthy of, and as we should. We pray that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts, that, that we would joyfully submit to your good commands, which are, are for our joy. That we would joyfully submit to lives of of active obedience to you, Lord, laying down our lives to live for you. That we 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 would go as joyful ambassadors of your kingdom and of your glory and of your truth into this world, come what may. Lord, even to joyfully face the scorn and the rejection of this world, even to, to joyfully face persecution should it come our way. Make us faithful. Give us such a vision by your spirit of your glory that we cannot remain silent, that we cannot remain inactive, that we cannot remain just, just closed up in this comfortable building and refuse to take your truth to the world around us in desperate need. I pray, God, that, that a vision of your glory would make us humble, and faithful, grateful, and full of love, and yet full of courage and determination to live for you, come what may. We thank you, Lord, for your sure promises to us that we need not fear what man can do to us, because if God is for us, then who could be against us? So we glory in you, we praise you, we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.